Well, a bad Santa was in the news last week. I don't know if you heard about this. Um, little Michael DeGarlo, age four, uh, had his Christmas hopes and dreams dashed by a Santa Claus at the mall. Uh, little Michael, uh, Santa, you know, his parents took him there to see Santa, and uh, Santa asked him what you want. Little Michael said, a Nerf gun. Santa's response to this was, nope, no guns. Uh, Michael and his parents were stunned. Uh, you can hear it on the video, uh, this consternation and the response, the give and take. And uh, Santa then, you know, realizes, you know, kind of the impact of what he said. He said, well, what else would you like, little boy? And Michael just collapses in tears. Uh, and this is all on video. It went viral. I mean, you can look this up when you, when you get home. Um, now, I'm not trying to, to dog on this, this gentleman uh, there in, in the mall, uh, trying to make some, you know, do his thing in the month of December, and uh, there he is. You know, it's never easy being Santa Claus. It's never easy being Santa Claus. You have to put up with moody children and grumpy parents and the long hours, and I could only imagine all the things that come in, in with all of that. And then you compound this, some interesting articles can be read, I uh, found a few this week, uh, on just the, the, here in 2020, December, Christmas of, of 2020, and the, the coronavirus complications that come with being Santa Claus. Okay, that said, this Santa failed to be what he was supposed to be. We just have to say that. In that moment... This Santa failed to be what he was supposed to be. Now, I bring this up to segue into this. The reality is we as those of us here who are disciples of Jesus, professing Christians, we often fail to do the same thing. We often fail to be what we are supposed to be. We as followers of Christ, His disciples in this world in the 21st century, are to be marked by love. Love for God, love for one another. And oh, how we fall so desperately short of what it is that we are supposed to be when it comes to this call to love. Love God, love, love one another. Do we have any hope? Yes, indeed we do. And actually, it's, it's immediately tied to this season. The hope that we have that we would grow in what it means and our ability and our ability and understanding of what it is to love is actually to hear the message of Christmas. Maybe for the first time. Maybe it for to land, you know, really hard and deep on us for the first time. We're in a little mini-series uh, in the course of this Advent season, a three-parter, the responses to Christmas. A couple weeks ago, we were in um, one of Paul's letters. This week, we're back. We're moving into 1 John. And next week, the plan is, is to be in 1 John yet again. There's so much there, such treasure troves to find. I have to tell you, uh, it was not planned that the text I'm about to preach on is the very text that was read a little while ago in the call to worship. That was, that was just a, the Lord did that. Um, wasn't even on my radar uh, this week, uh, in, the, in the weeks when I was planning uh, this series. Uh, if you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me, though, to 1 John, 1 John chapter 4. 
1 John chapter 4, if you're struggling to find, well, where in the world is that? Okay, if you got a Bible, you might have an index at the back. You might have some maps. Move to the left. You'll hit this big book called Revelation. You'll hit a little book called Jude. You'll hit 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. Okay, 1 John, it's five chapters. Okay, 1 John, it's five chapters. We're in 1 John 4. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 16. So I'm actually going a little further than we read earlier. And just as I, as I let you know, we're honing in on one verse, and it's verse 14. I do want to read the larger context, but we're going to be drilling down on verse 14, okay? And then, and then letting the larger passage kind of inform what that, that verse actually means, okay? So 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, "'Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him.'" In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Well, can we pray for just a moment? Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the readings that we have already been able to do and the songs that we have already been able to sing. In many respects, we could just stop if we would just let that uh, have its way, so to speak, with us uh, in the time we've spent so far. We thank you we've got a little bit more time here this morning to, together. Uh, we thank you for this time to delve into this passage. Uh, we thank you for uh, how searching this is and how astonishing the, the realities are that John is relaying to us. And um, thank you for your work in, in his life. And uh, the, the, the miracle, the miracle that his personality coming out in here, John is the writer, but the Holy Spirit is the author. And there is a mystery here. And then that mystery continues in how this same word inspired you and your Holy Spirit can illumine our eyes and change even us today in what John has passed down to us. And we want to be changed. And where we don't want to be changed, would you change us all the more? Uh, where we need comfort, where we need conviction, where we need gentleness, where we need strength, oh, we plead with you. Would you 
do these things in the measure that we need and the measure that we are ready for, that you've prepared us for. We ask these things in the only name that we have to ask, Jesus. Amen. New Testament scholars are in general agreement that the Apostle John is the, is the one who wrote this letter. The same one who wrote the Gospel of John, the same one who wrote 2nd and 3rd John, the same one who writes the book of Revelation. So that's important to recognize because the author, this, this human being who's relaying these things to us, is, is the same man who spent three years with Jesus in his earthly ministry, watched the miracles, was a witness to those things. He observed Jesus' teaching and his engagement with the crowds. He was there at the foot of the cross that Good Friday. He was one of the first witnesses to the empty tomb that Easter Sunday. He ate with the risen Jesus by that lake shore just a few days later, and he has spent decades now in service to Jesus. He's a very old man at this point. From what we can tell, likely serving in the church, ministering in the context of the church of Ephesus, sometime between roughly 68, 69 A.D. and about 90, somewhere in there. We're not exactly sure. But John's a very old man now, and and he's reflecting on on these things in in a way that age, you know, and seasoning experience only can lend. Now, his writing style, those of you who have ever read John's gospel and then, like, say, picked up Matthew or Mark or Luke, you realize, oh, my goodness. Or if you read 1 John and then you compare that to, say, some of Paul's letters, John's way of writing, especially in 1 John, is very different. His, his, his style, his style of, of writing is very, very different. It's not linear the way Paul is. And, you know, and I say that because when you're outlining, say, one of Paul's letters, most commentators are in general agreement, yep, 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 that's the point, that's, that, that's it. Not so with John. John is much more circular. He has particular themes that he's honing in and pressing on in this letter, but he, it's not that he develops them, you know, like, say, first chapter to fifth chapter. It's more like he, he, he's already pretty much put them out there right in chapter one. He just keeps returning, circling, 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 and stressing certain things on those themes with each pass, okay? And, and the general uh, focus, the general theme of the whole letter, what he's after here, is that, that his readers might know the tests of genuine Christianity, the signs that the gospel has actually taken hold of our hearts, the external marks, the ways that you can know that a, that a professing Christian is, in fact, what they say they are. And those marks are basically three, and he keeps returning to these three, okay, again and again and again through the course of this letter. It's, it's faith faith, the apostolic true as passed down, you know, faith in Jesus as the risen Son of God, the Savior of sinners, as faith and obedience and love. Those are the three marks, the three signs of genuine Christianity. Faith, obedience, love. All three are present in the text that we just read. But one of them, the call to love, is the one that's strongest in this text that he's putting the most emphasis on in this passage. What is it that John, what instruction is it that he gives to his readers as to how to love? What, what 
what admonition, what counsel, what urgings, what encouragement does he pass on to his readers that we might know what it is to love? What's interesting how he basically answers that question here. He takes us to the deep significance of Jesus' coming, that we might know what it is to love. John takes us to the deep significance of Jesus' coming. He takes us to Christmas. Why? Because the deep significance of Jesus' coming, the, the, the deeper meaning of what it is we're celebrating in this season is the love of God for us. The love of God for us. And John knows if we are to know anything and have any ability whatsoever in what it is to love one another, we have got to go back to what it is that, to know that God, in fact, loves us. And that fuels, that shapes, that does everything. That vertical His love to us is what does everything in terms of our love for one another. And that's why He goes there. That's why He goes there. That's why He connects the way that He does. Put another way, to heed this call to love, to, that we might be able to heed this call to love. It's so apparent in this passage, so obvious in this passage that we would be able to heed this call to love, we must then hear the Christmas message. Okay? Now, what is it about this Christmas message that then would enable us better to heed this call to love? There's three things, and if you printed out the outline, you can see it there in front of you. I'm going to go through these. I'm going to be linear, unlike John. I'm going to be linear going one, two, three, okay? Uh, and these three things that, that help us in, it's, as far as the, the, the things that He shows us about the love of the Father for us. And the first is the object of His love. Who, who is the object of the Father's love? That's the first thing. The second thing is the necessity of this love. The object of this love, the necessity of this love, and then thirdly, the initiative of this love. Now, those things are all related, obviously, but they're distinct as well. And we're going to move through them in, 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 in three parts. First, the object, the necessity, the initiative of this love. The first, the object of this love. Who is it? Who is, the, who, who is it that is the recipient of this lavishing love of the, of the Father? Well, John makes it very clear. Again, we're, like I said, we're going to drill into verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be... The Savior of the world. Who is it that is the object of this love? Who is it, for whose sake is all this Christmas drama about? John says it is the world. Now, clarity of terms is vital at this point. What is, when he says that, what does he mean? The Greek word, in case you're wondering, is cosmos. That, that may be familiar to you. However, it means something different than what you think. Okay, when, when John says that the object of the Father's love and there in the sending of the Son to be the Savior of the world, he's not referring to the natural created order. Okay, he's not referring to planet Earth. This is not your proof text for the stewardship of the environment. Quick aside, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. That is commanded. 
okay? Let's be clear on this point. The stewardship of this world, this earth, God's created, this is my Father's world, that is commanded. There are plenty of proof texts. We could do a sermon series on that, but you're not going to find it in 1 John 4, okay? Because that's not what he means here. This word world is not a reference to the created order. This world, this word world here is a reference to mankind, godless society, man, us, us, as human beings in rebellion against our Creator. Godless society displeasing to the Father and under His just judgment. And if you wonder I don't know, is that really what this means? Then go back with me to 1 John 2. It's another reference. You can keep, the way you can discover this is just look at the way he uses the word in other contexts. Well, 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16, look at what he says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Clearly, John means for us to understand that in this meaning of the way he's using that word, he means the world as in opposition, hostile to God. So, this is the object of his love, the world, which then takes us to this, the impatience of God's love. Now, you're like, what? Surely he just misspoke. My kids tell me I do that all the time. It's true. However, not here. I know. We just read from 1 Corinthians 13 just a little while ago. And I know. I know. It says in that passage that love is patient. I know. But not here. Here's what I mean by that. God's love does not wait for us to be worthy of His love. You understand? So in that sense, the love of the Father is impatient. It does not wait. It is reckless. And that's really good news. The, his love is dependent upon nothing in the object of His affection. It is dependent completely upon something in His heart. It's vital for us to recognize it's, what, it's part of the implications of what we can see here in the fact that He loves the world, that the world, as John says it, is the object of His love. And this is why, this time of year, just got to say it, just got to be honest, this is why Santa's list of who's naughty and who's nice is problematic. You know, He knows when you've been sleeping, He knows when you're awake, He knows when you've been good or bad, for, so be good for goodness sake. Well, oh my word! There'd better be some mercy and grace dialed into that equation, or we're all getting nothing for Christmas, or at best, coal. That speaks to the reality of the world. He loves the world, this impatience to His love. Now, think just in terms of application. What are the implications for our call to love? Our call to love. How has God loved us? That's where we have to go. How has God loved us? What this means is, however hard it may be to grapple with, the implications of this are very simple, though difficult. We cannot wait for the people around us to be worthy of our love. Right? We cannot wait 
for them to get things right on social issues. We cannot wait for them to get straight when it comes to political positions, which of course means thinking how we think, right? We cannot wait for them to get cleaned up, straightened out, and figure things out. No. Not if we are to love as we have been loved. We, our love is to be impatient in that sense. In that sense. Our love is to be reckless in that sense. If we are indeed to love as we have been loved. Our love for the people around us can never be dependent upon something in them. It has to be something dependent in us, and in this case, it's the love of the Father showered, lavished upon us. And that's what it's based on. That's what it's based on. To heed this call to love, we simply have to hear, we have to begin here with hearing the message of Christmas. That's the first point, the object of His love. The second is following right up on that, and that is the necessity of His love, the absolute necessity of His love. Again, back to verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Oh my, really? Why? Why did He have to do that? What's so wrong with the world? Why are things, why would John, why are you saying things are so amiss? That things are so askew with the world that it would take the sending of God in the flesh to fix it. What could be so wrong that it would take that to fix it? Well, for starters, it's a dire situation. I've alluded to this already. Our rebellion, mankind, our, the Bible speaks of our sin, and that word means a, a missing of the mark. Or our transgressions is another way, and that is our crossing of a line. Our sin, our transgression, our rebellion, our self-will, our self-governing, our self-dependence, our self, 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 our turning our back on our Creator King. And as the late R.C. Sproul referred to it this way, our committing cosmic treason against Him. It's a dire situation, our rebellion, and then running in a head-on collision with His holiness, with His justice. You see, for the judge of all the world to do right, he simply can't just pretend that hasn't happened. He simply can't just overlook it and say, oh, why can we do so many of our family quarrels, right? Let's just lift it under the rug, sweep, 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 pretend it's not there. No, for God to be just, He cannot just pretend it's not there. It has to be dealt with in, in, in some way. I mean, it's, for Jesus, just think with me for a minute, for Jesus to be spoke of, spoken of as the Savior of the world, does it not imply that the world needs saving? Saving. This is a, a dire situation that's being alluded to here, demanding a great deliverance, something dramatic. The sending of the, the Father, the Father sending the Son to save the world. 
to save the world. And we see that alluded to already here. Uh, We read it earlier when I read the larger passage, but verses 9 and 10, you see this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this word, propitiation, I know it's not one that we use a whole lot. It basically means an atoning sacrifice. Jesus' perfect life lived on our behalf. His sacrificial death is dying in our behalf. His living and dying for us that we might live. And that was the point, that was the purpose from the very beginning. The manger, I know we don't have crucifixes in our manger scenes, but it's there. He was born to die. That's why He came. The manger leads to the cross. That's why He came. That we would live. That we might live. That we might live. This is the only solution. It's the only possible solution. He is the only Savior. You may note there in in verse 14, we keep coming back to that. John does not say... The Father sent the, His Son as a Savior. Oh, hope it works out. But as the Savior, He is the only way. He is the only one. This took, the situation is so dire, so desperate, it demanded the Son of God. He is the only one, can I put it this way? Heroic enough, strong enough, noble enough able to get himself down underneath the weight of it all and bear it, put it upon his shoulders, and carry it away. He's the only one. He's the only one that could do this. And this speaks to the necessity of God's love, the absolute raw necessity of his love. Some of you may be familiar with Christina Rossetti's beautiful song, In the Bleak Midwinter. not going to sing it. I love you too much. You don't want that. I'll read, though, the first stanza, Okay. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter, long, long ago. Now, those of you who know me, my children especially, my wife will tell you, I love winter. Give me the white stuff. I don't even care if it's ice. Give it to me, and plenty of it, okay? But this this is not a cozy scene of steaming cocoa and children making snowmen out in the yard. That's not what this is. The picture that Christina Rossetti is painting here in these beautiful... I know, I'm mixing the metaphors. The picture she's painting in the lyrics is of a bleak... Midwinter, a desolate scene, no life, no growth. It's cold, dark, hard barrenness. And that's where we are without Jesus. That's where this whole world is without Jesus. That's the point of her song. You keep reading on through the lyrics. What are the implications, the necessity, absolute necessity of God's love? 
for us? What are the implications of this as we think in terms of our call, the call upon us that we are to, are to love one another? Well, again, how has the Father loved us? How has the Father loved us? He has met us at the, at the point of our greatest need, our point of desperate need, a need so desperate that we don't even know how desperate we are until He opens our eyes to see it. That's how desperate the need is. That's how dire the circumstances are. That's where He meets us. Our ability, our even wanting to say nothing of, of, our, of our ability to even begin to grapple with this idea of loving one another begins at the point where we humbly reckon with our desperate need of Jesus. It begins with the point that we realize that we are a part of that world. We stand in desperate need of this the sending of the Father, sending of the Son for us. And without that, we have no hope whatsoever. Our ability, our desire, our everything, when it comes to loving one another, begins at that point where we humbly reckon with the reality that we need the Father's love desperately, that we might, that we might live our call to love one another, our ability to heed the call to, want to love one another begins with hearing this message of Christmas. That then takes us into the third point. Not only are we seeing the object of this love but the, and the necessity of this love, but the initiative of this love. His moving towards us. We've seen this already. Let me read it again, verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. The Father has sent. We've seen this twice already. Actually, it's this exact same verbiage used in verses 9 and 10. It's now the third time in this short passage that we're reading, the Father has sent His Son. The Father has sent His Son. The Father has sent His Son, lest we would miss it, this, the necessity of this initiative. Why? Because the love of the Father is ultimately, we've just got to say this, the very definition of love. The love of the Father is the very definition of love. Twice, you see it in this passage, it says, God is love. You see it there in verse 8, and you see it there in verse 16. Twice, John says, God is love. Now, again, clarity of terms. John doesn't say, don't get confused here, John doesn't say, love is God. As though, oh, like... This experience of giving love and receiving love is a divine thing. It's a heady thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a sweet thing. Love is God. That's not what John says. He says God is love. Now, what does he mean by that? That, that love is an essential attribute, an essential characteristic of the heart of God, just as much as His goodness and His righteousness Okay? So that's what he means when he says God is love, and it is borne out with the incarnation. And he says that twice as well. This is, is love. There in verses 9 and 10, this is love, the incarnation, the sending of the Son, the Father sending the Son for our sakes. That is the great model of love. It is the great motivation of love, and it is so costly. 
so costly. Some of you may be familiar with O. Henry's uh, short story, The Gift of the Magi. You can find it. It's uh, public domain online. I uh, read it just a couple of days ago again for the umpteenth time. So here's the basic plot line in, in case you're not familiar with it. So you, it's, it's the story of this uh, impoverished young husband and wife at Christmas time who, in their great love for one another, desperately want to be able to give something to each other. Now, each of them has one great material treasure. Uh, Della, the wife, it's her hair, this long, beautiful hair, the envy of everyone that knows her. Jim, it's a golden watch, a family heirloom passed down to him to, uh, from his grandfather. Okay, so what are they going to do? Unbeknownst to each other, this is what they do. Della takes, well, she goes to a hairdresser, has her hair cut, and then sells it so that she can buy a chain for Jim's golden watch. Jim, unbeknownst to him, what she's doing, takes his watch to a, a, a clock shop, or a, I don't know where he takes it, but he takes it somewhere and, and sells it that he can then purchase these ornamental jeweled combs and brushes for Della. They both come home at the end of these errands, and it's a very interesting conversation that takes place when they realize what each has done for the other. Now, I have to tell you, when I first heard that story, I was probably like 10 or 12 years old. I was on a Christmas Eve service, and I thought, what a tragedy. That's just awful. I was just bummed out the rest of the night, completely missing the point, as I often did and do. Um, it's not a tragedy. It's a story of the, the costliness of genuine love. That's why it's called the gift of the magi. That's what the story is called. It's, it's, what he, what he, oh, Henry's trying to, do, trying to do there with Della and Jim is to, to picture something in a contemporary context of what the magi were doing as they came and presented their gifts to, to Jesus. And that, of course, is ultimately patterned on the sending of Jesus into this world for our sake at great cost to the Father. That's what that's all about. That's what all of this is, is, is about. This initiative is so costly, and it's not just the only thing that we see here in terms of the definition of what it looks like, but the very completion of, of love, what it's about, what it's driving towards. is worth noting here, too. That's verse 12. That's not the only time you see it. You see it again, I think it's in verse 17. No one has ever seen God... If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And that does come up again in verse 17. His love is perfected in us. What, what does John mean by this? This is what he means. He's saying when we love, when we love one another as we have been loved by God, two things are going on there. One is, that's clear evidence of God's work in our lives, okay? When we love one another as we have been loved, that is clear evidence of, of the Spirit's presence, of the gospel having taken hold, and it manifesting itself, it's showing itself, it's working itself out in our lives. That's the first thing. But there's really something beautiful and intriguing. That it's not, that's not all that John says here. 
He says that when this happens, the Father's love is, com- is perfected in us, meaning that its purpose is fulfilled. It has reached its goal. It has come to its completion and fulfillment in that moment, however brief, faltering, or halting it may be, that we love as we have been loved. We, in that moment, that existential moment, are in sync with the eternal purpose of God as to why He sent the Son into this world in the first place. That's what it means to say that when we love, His love is perfected in in us. That is astonishing. Now, think with me what the implications are here. The implications of, of for, for what it means for us to love one another. Again, we have to go back to, well, how is it that we have been loved? Look, our, the times in which you and I truly love one another might be as rare as a white Christmas in Tennessee. That may be the case. But however few or many times that that actually happens that we actually love one another. In those moments where we actually, out of love for Jesus, lay down our rights and don't insist on our way. In those moments, out of love for Jesus, that we confess our sin to one another and grant forgiveness to one another. In those moments where, out of love for Jesus, oh, in 2020, could this be? We grant charitable judgments to one another. We think the best of one another and their motivations and intentions. In those moments where we love one another, the angels are singing. The angels are shocked all over again as to the fulfillment, the perfection of the Father's love in us, in our lives, and it is a cause for our own rejoicing. It is a cause for our own boasting, not in ourselves, but in Him, in the boasting, in the rejoicing of the Father's love for the likes of us that is actually having a transformative effect in our lives. And that, my friends, is cause for singing at Christmas time. that we would be able to heed this call to love. We must hear this message of Christmas. Oh, that we would hear it. Oh, that we would hear it, that I would hear it, that we would hear it, that you would hear it, that we would together could hear it. This message can change you. It really, really can. Think with me as to what's pictured uh, in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, okay? Think of how Ebenezer Scrooge is first introduced to us. I'm going to read you a quote from the book, okay? Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster, The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. 
He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. And of course, all of this is, is, is borne out in his behavior, right? In his uh, refusal to give towards the, the collectors of the charity, his uh, rejection of the overtures of kindness of his nephew, his harsh, overbearing, slavish, demanding ways with poor Bob Cratchit, right? And then what happens? He has this encounter on Christmas Eve with these three visitors, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And it has an effect upon him. And Dickens clearly means for us to understand. When you read it carefully, whatever Dickens actually understood about what he's writing, he clearly means for the reader to understand that Scrooge has gone through a conversion. Let me pick up later in the book. He went to church. He walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head, questioned beggars, looked down into the kitchens of houses, up to the windows, and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. And the fruit of all that had been borne out in his generosity to those charities, in his repentance to his nephew, and his overwhelming generosity and kindness towards not only Bob, but the whole Cratchit family. And, you know, there's just something about this story that has lasting power. You know, it was published in 1843 and has never been out of print. Gone through who knows how many itinerations of, of movie adaptations and, and little even 30-minute sitcoms, you know, trying to tap into, and some of them done far better or worse than others, to be sure. But the idea is there's something about this story that grabs people. And it's, it's not just, oh, you know, the worst of us can change for the better. I mean, that is, yeah, okay, that's fine, but that's not it. This is tapping into something. What is it tapping into? It's tapping into what John is telling us in 1 John 4, that we indeed have a call to love one another that we must heed. Now, how can that be? Hearing the message of Christmas, of the love of God for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for Advent and for the Christmas celebration. I thank You for the, the warmth and the nostalgia and the sentiment. Thank You for the opportunities for us to gather, to give. Thank You for the reminders of the great miracle, the sending of the Son of God for the sake of the world. Thank You for the reality the deep reality underneath the nativity scene, the deep why. Oh, we plead with you, please, Jesus, may these things not be lost upon us. Your love for us and therein what must be our love for one another. We would ask that even this Christmas, this season, in 2020, of all years, 
that you would spin it on its head right here at the close, and that our celebration would not be empty, but fuller than ever. We pray this in your name. Amen.